So tonight we are looking at Psalm 53, which is on page 475 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Psalm 53. To the choir master according to Mahalath, the master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is, no, there is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. stuff coming through the window. <laughs> Praise God. Light. Let there be light. Um, Psalm 53 may, may sound familiar to you. It should, uh, even even preaching on Sunday evening, I, it wasn't too terribly long ago that we did Psalm 14. If you do a comparison in your Bible of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, you will notice they're virtually the same. There are a few differences, um, but uh, essentially a repetition. The other place that you find these verses, the, the first uh, part of Psalm 53, is in Romans chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 10, verses 10 through 12. So you have the, uh, the recorded there. So three times in the Word of God, you have uh, these, this Word of God, which is infallible and inerrant, spoken by the Holy Spirit through David twice and through uh, the Apostle Paul quoting David in, in um, Romans chapter 3. There, famously, he uses these verses. How many, how many, how many people uh, were at the evangelism training? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you, and if you do, you know what this is, right? Yeah. This is it. And then you know what this is, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> and what about what about what do we learn about man in this uh, hand? He's a sinner and cannot save himself. Exactly. And we quoted this, and and the Bible, and one critique, you know, somebody made. We don't have enough verses to go with the points, and hmm. and I, I, they're in the book, so read them. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, there's a, but this is this is the this is the verse. So, yep. I would like to tell you that was carefully planned by me in advance. <laughs> Some of you know me too well. But it's one of those wonderful providences. Um, key point of knowing that this took place in three places is this. When God wants to emphasize something, he repeats it. He repeated it twice in the life of David, and the Apostle Paul uses it as coloring the background for the whole gospel of grace. That man is a sinner, and he cannot save himself. And that because of that, he is deserving of judgment. That is um, the, you know, Heaven's a free gift. If we don't earn it or deserve it, we, we, we love that part. But when we get to, yeah, it's this one. We use this hand. When we get to this one, this is, uh, this is it, gets, it should be personal. Because we have to deal with the fact of our own sin. I um, <clears throat> use the same title for this message that I used for the last message. And I entitled it, The Creed of the Fool. Um, creed is a brief, authoritative statement of faith. And we make, we, our most famous creed is the Apostles' Creed, not, not written by the Apostles, but nonetheless a very early statement of the Christian faith. And we, we say it boldly and loudly and we we lay it to heart this uh, psalm psalm 14 talks about the creed of the fool his brief authoritative religious statement is there is no god and he doesn't say it verbally. Doesn't he? Doesn't confess it out loud. But more importantly, he confesses it in his heart, and he lives his life like there is no God. I grew up in church. I, I see young people in the church, and I remember so well uh, growing up in, in the Methodist church in my little town, my hometown in Alabama, and going and being a young uh, uh, a young person like some of our young people here, and uh, easily distracted by the things that are going on, the things in the back of the pew, and the things that are over here and there, and it's just like. And, it, and it's, even as a grown-up, I find myself slipping. But I remember um, when I had the freedom to go and sit wherever I wanted to, uh, I would sit in the back pew, and I remember one Sunday morning looking there, and somebody had scratched into the back of the pew 
God is dead. Mm. Mm. I, was, I was shocked as a kid that someone would have the audacity in church to scratch that into a pew. Mm. And it was in the midst of the, the 1960, I can date myself, 1960s. <laughs> I mean, that's how old. Most of you were not born in 1960. But if you remember that time, it was a time of rebellion and uh, mm. protest and, and um, all kinds of, of uh, rioting. It's somewhat analogous to the present time where we live, quite frankly. And mm. all the rage, the, the reason there's some famous bishop, uh, archbishop in, um, what's the guy's name? Who said that? He, he, re, he repurposed mm. uh, Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche had famously made that proclamation. And, uh, and uh, he was, he's a dead German philosopher, by the way. And, uh, Nietzsche, <laughs> Nietzsche's dead, but God's not. Amen. Right. Uh, but, but some Anglican bishop had made that, had made it. Spawn? Famous. What's that? Spawn? Yes. Uh, Shelby Spawn. <laughs> Thank you. I knew some, I knew he would get yeah. it. Philosophy yeah, 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 yeah. professor here <laughs> on the second row. <laughs> Heretical bishops for 200. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Bishop, Archbishop, I think it was an Archbishop. And he had, he had, he had like, like, he had discovered this, uh, uh, this incredible truth. And, and uh, it was a, a shock to the system. Well, atheism is um, still in vogue. Mm -hmm. So I'm so grateful for Dr. James Bruce teaching philosophy at John Brown University and, and uh, being in our church, being access to university students because probably the most uh, destructive class of all classes of undergraduates is philosophy 101 at a secular university. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate in my philosophy 101 class at, at in Oxford, <laughs> to have a, have a, at least a deist. It was a, uh, a Jesuit priest who couldn't keep his orders and wanted to get married, and so he he went from there to at least he was a deist. Uh, at least he had some sense that there was a God, and so that was that was an advantage. But but so many see their position in that, in that class is to destroy faith. And for students who are uh, away from home and away from their uh, church home and their upbringing, uh, it's an invitation to uh, have reinforced ideas that lead to not only temporary destruction, but eternal destruction. Why the, the college campus is such a strategic place for the gospel, and so that's one of the founding principles of our church, and we hold to it. We love the fact that students are here, and we want to encourage you and uh, know that you have a place that you can ask your questions, and you'll get good answers from the Bible, because we believe the Bible is the Word of God. But it's interesting that the psalmist, in and and this is. Um, 
one of the reasons he might have written, I, I kind of tend toward the view that the superscriptions, a little uh, funny writing at the top of the psalm, I kind of tend to the view that they're inspired too, but I can't prove that, so I don't make that assertion boldly. And uh, we don't read it as part of the text. Um, but, but there's some historical background that's of great value. They're very ancient, and so they're important, so at the very least. And, and these terms that we wonder about in them, um, the choir master, uh, according to Mechalotha, Mechaloth, rather, a masculine of David. What, do, what does that mean? Well, it's probably a musical term. If you go back to uh, Psalm 14, it doesn't have that. It simply says the Psalm of David. This, this may be a psalm that was just sung to one tune in, in, uh, in chapter 14, and like we do sometimes here, sing the same song to a different tune. It's probably something like that, and something of a, a different uh, occasion. And uh, uh, Harrison's not here for me to pick on. Those all you choir members, thank you again for this that beautiful, worshipful praise this morning. To the choir master. This is a prepared song for worship. Claiming to be wise, it says in Romans 1.22 that we read this morning. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Foolishness is our nature. By our human nature apart from the work of the Holy Spirit operating upon us. We are naturally prone to believe there is no God. And I have to think that when David wrote this psalm, he was thinking about an incident in his life when he was on the run from King Saul over in 1 Samuel chapter 25, uh, having success against his enemy, having taken every disadvantage uh, he could in order to preserve uh, Saul and preserve his own men as he's on the lamb. He's running through Judea trying to get away from Saul. And he people know that he is the anointed king. He is Saul's replacement. They know why Saul is so bent on destroying him. And he runs across the territory of one Nabal. And he meets Nabal and says, Can you help my men out? Can you provide can you give them provisions? And he mocks him. And who are you, David? Who do you think you are to ask me of this? And treats him rather rudely. And Dave and 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 King David, uh, the anointed King David, David is infuriated. He's out he's He's like going back with his men and he's, he's uh, enraged. He's full of wrath. He says, every one of you strap on your sword. We're going to go and kill Nabal and all of his children because of this insult. And you know the story. You should know the story. Abigail intervenes for her husband. And it's such an instructive time when she goes and talks to uh, David. She takes, she takes the, the food and the provisions for all of David's men, and she runs out to meet him and says, 
I'm sorry about my stupid husband. What a, what a way. It's incredible. <laughs> Nabal is his name because he is a Nabal. Nabal means fool. It's the same word here. Who would name their kid Nabal? <laughs> what, was, what were they thinking? What's in a name? Abigail says, Nabal is his name because he is a fool. He is a fool. And she intervenes, and because of her intervention, uh, uh, Nabal's spared temporarily. You know the rest of the story. He, he dies by supernatural intervention of God. Abigail becomes David's, one of his wives. It's a very interesting story. The Bible's full of interesting stories. Nabal said in his heart, he had nothing to fear from uh, David. What are the foolish like? They're corrupt. They do an abominable iniquity. There's no one who does good. That should sound very familiar to you from Romans chapter 3, verse 20. They profess... Uh, they profess uh, to be wise, but they are <coughs> Hopelessness is the condition, the human condition apart from the gospel. <coughs> That's why it's so important for us, whenever we are sharing the gospel, to offer the hope of the gospel, the great hope. Apart from Christ, there is no hope because of this deep core sinfulness that is possessed by every human being. Our Lord Jesus made it clear that in Mark 7 and Matthew 15, the parallel passages that talk about where, where does corruption come from? Where does, where does wickedness, where, where does vileness, where does adultery and lying and stealing and, and, all, and all of the junk that uh, inhabits us comes from makes it clear that it's out of the heart the heart is desperately sick it's deceitful above everything else who can know it and that's what this psalm says there is no one who does good They have all, verse 3, couldn't be more clear. They have all fallen away. They, together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And that includes David himself as he writes his psalm. Later on, David would experience grave serious public moral failures multiple times and God would deal with him but not cast him away which is a very important thing you may play the part of a fool everyone does you may you may live for the moment like there is no God and if you're a child of God you're going to be disciplined because every son, every daughter he receives, he disciplines. 
not to destroy us, not to crush us, but because he loves us and he will not let us go astray. We must think about this every time we come to the Lord's table. The Apostle Paul insists, as he instructs us in 1 Corinthians 11, that we, we examine ourselves to see if, if we are indeed trusting in Christ alone as a result, living a life of pleasing to God. And to, to not seriously examine our life and then come and partake of this meal that proclaims the death of Jesus for sins, his taking his wrath away, we're told that is to eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. That doesn't mean that we wait until we are perfect. We will never come if we wait that long. But it does mean that we, we humble ourselves, we confess our sins, and that we endeavor with new repentance to live as followers of Jesus. The second thing that I would point out tonight is um, the conviction of the wicked. What will happen to those who hate God? What, what will happen to those who hate his people? You recognize the corollary there between hating God and hating his people? There it is. Those who work evil, those who work evil, those have those I'm going to get my prescription fixed have those who work evil no knowledge don't they understand who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God we live in a world where God's people who, who hold fast to the faith in the midst of persecution, they're being slaughtered. Our brothers and sisters in Nigeria are being slaughtered every week. I read an article two weeks ago that said an average of 50 Nigerian Christians are slaughtered every week. And yet there's hardly any mention of it. Our brothers and sisters in China are being imprisoned and forgotten. Godly pastors are arrested you never hear from them again. This is supposedly one of our big allies. More, they're more God-fearing, professing Christians in <coughs> China than there are here. Yet there's they're a tiny minority in comparison to <coughs> the majority in that country. We need to remember to pray for these. <coughs> in um, Sub-Saharan Africa, the persecution of our brothers and sisters is fierce. We should never forget it. In the Muslim countries, <coughs> and uh, we, we think of <coughs> in Gaza, it's horrible what happened to the Jewish people in Gaza, but realize there are brothers and sisters in Christ in Gaza who are, who are being put to death just as, just as readily as the Jews. I'm 
so grateful for David Zadok's ministry of the Messianic Church right on right on the border of Gaza that we support, helping them, helping those churches minister to those people. They eat up God's people like bread. What will happen to them? Are they just going to escape? No, they're not. They are in great terror. God scatters the bones of those who encamp against his people and will put them to shame because God has rejected them. Um, we see in this text the coming salvation of his people. Oh, that the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortune of his people that, ja that Jacob rejoiced that Israel be glad. God has restored the fortunes of his people in the coming of the Messiah, David's uh, greater son. God will, res will restore the fortunes of his ethnic people, Israel. I'm thoroughly convinced that that's beginning to happen now. We're seeing it starting to happen. And, and when he does, Romans chapter 11 makes it very clear it's going to be a blessing for the whole world. We as children of God through faith in Christ need not fear, need not be afraid of what man will do to us, what people say about us, about whatever persecution may come, because we are kept firm by the promises of God, and his promises are inevitable, they're not Yes and no, or maybe they're yes and yes. They're affirmations. And that is our confidence tonight. That Christ has come. He has fulfilled the plan of salvation perfectly. And he will come again. <clears throat> and until he comes again, we're told that we are to partake of the sacrament. Because in so doing... We proclaim his death until he comes and he fulfills all of history. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this precious time to worship you with these ordinary means of grace, the word, the sacrament, our prayers, our fellowship in Christ. Bless each one of them for the sacred purpose of building us up and equipping us for further service. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.